is Zip Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. Are technology companies trailing in the wake of cyber terrorists? The diplomatic dude who says the US-UK relationship really is special. What we haven't lost is the resolve and the commitment to work with the UK to deal with the challenges we see around the globe. And as Armistice Day approaches, we remember. The new director of GCHQ is accusing technology firms of being in denial about the misuse of the internet by terrorists and other criminals. In a newspaper article this week, Robert Hannigan says Islamic State is the first terrorist group whose members have grown up on the internet. He says the big internet firms must work more closely with the intelligence services, warning privacy cannot be an absolute right. So, is the new man at the top right? I'm joined, as usual, by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and also by the former director of GCHQ, Professor Sir David Omond. Hello to both of you. Uh, Sir David, to you first. Uh, it appears that Robert Hannigan has hit the ground running. Are terrorist groups more tech-savvy than the big technology companies and GCHQ? Well, I think everyone is becoming more tech-savvy, and that applies to the bad guys as well as to the rest of us who are getting the benefit from the Internet. And I think the realisation that... Uh, the internet, the modern apps that are used uh, are capable of being exploited by those who mean us harm is a realisation that's crept up on us over the last few years. Robert Hannigan, I think, is quite right to sound a warning that uh, now is the time to start talking with the industry about how we can cope with this. And what more do you think the industry should be doing exactly? Well, the industry say that they will respond to legal warrants, and I'm sure they do when it's a simple request for looking up an address of a, somebody who's got a subscription. But what is needed is a much more active dialogue to see how the kind of information that the Internet companies have can be used to keep us safe, to catch the serious cyber criminals and, most importantly, to deal with the growing threat of terrorists who are using the Internet. Surely those Internet companies, though, if they did have a concern, they would flag it up, wouldn't they? I'm not sure they would know. I think this is where the dialogue needs to come in. We used to have very good informal relationships with those companies because their staff don't want to be uh, harmed anymore than anyone else, and they have a corporate social responsibility. But since the Snowden revelations, they've backed away from government and they've been anxious to reassure their customers that their data is safe from prying. Well, GCHQ doesn't pry. What it does is to try and uncover terrorist networks and uh, preempt the kind of criminal acts that we see on the internet. So, Christopher, uh, these comments coming from Robert Hannigan, is this a sign that there are going to be new changes at GCHQ? What kind of man is he? I'm not sure about changes. I mean, you, you can go back to uh, I mean, the previous condition of GCHQ. It is, it is a continuation in this. And it also is a continuation in, in, in intelligence gathering, electronic intelligence gathering. It's dissemination. Who else you uh, work with? And there's something else which is 
is behind a lot of the anxieties here. There is a public and legal condition that we're talking about. It's the contradiction between intelligence gathering, which is to protect the nation, and other nations indeed, and the nation's rights to have their information and their personalities protected. And this is extraordinarily important, and sometimes I think GCHQ is accused of having all the masses of information, where in fact, I think, uh, Professor, you could tell better that it's very, very little is actually gathered and very, very little is actually held on to. So is, is it true, Sir David, that, that there is a misconception publicly about how much snooping really goes on? Yes, I think the Edward Snowden revelations have created a, a moral panic about privacy, which is actually unjustified. The senior uh, commissioner, the retired judge who has the legal duty to inspect GCHQ recently reported in public, there, there is no mass surveillance. Uh, what they're doing is lawful and it's very discriminating, it's very selective. But, and this is the crucial point that people miss, to find the needle in the haystack you have to have access to the haystack and the computers have to have access to the internet. I don't think it's recognised sufficiently, for example, how much our armed forces depend nowadays on digital intelligence because their adversaries, whether we've, we're talking about the past campaign in Afghanistan or Iraq today or Libya, uh, their adversaries use exactly the same technology as everyone else. Indeed, I mean, money comes into this as well, doesn't it? Because um, the, the thinking is that the IS, the terrorists, are one step ahead to some extent. That they have young people, they're recruiting them, are very internet, very savvy. Do you think enough money is being put into the, the same kind of resources to tackle that in, in the UK? I don't think it's so much a question of resources as having the active cooperation of the technology companies and having the right kind of legal structure, which I think we do have, and oversight to reassure the, the, the public. But what the Snowden revelations have done is given a very clear set of signals to the, uh, for example, the jihadists in Syria and Iraq of how they can best avoid detection. So they, they know a great deal now about capabilities and the technology companies are busy encrypting everything to make it harder and harder for lawful interception, that is, with a warrant, mm. uh, to take place. Christopher? An example of how quickly this has happened, this whole technology, intelligence, the way it's changed. Twelve years ago, only a couple of people at Stanford University knew what Google was. Today, it's a verb. Now, that's the speed of which this, the change is happening, and it's only the beginning. So, David, you talk about the companies themselves uh, taking on more responsibility. Do you think there should be new laws to oblige them to? I think probably after the next British general, general election, there will have to be uh, fresh legislation to make it clear what their responsibilities are. What do you think it should be, that legislation? What do you think it should say? Well... The companies, I think, will have to be obliged to retain uh, certain data about communications that pass uh, along their networks and uh, uh, of, of their subscribers and set a framework within which constructive discussions can take place. But and 
the intelligence community has to play its part too. I mean, it has to be very clear there is to be no snooping, there is no mass surveillance, uh, and they will accept the oversight, the rigorous oversight, to ensure the public knows that what they're doing is lawful. Briefly, Christopher, new people in charge at MI6 and MI5, are we entering a new era with them? It's not so much as a new era. It's, you've got an MI5, you've got Andrew Parker, an MI6, Alex Younger, and then you know, Robert Hannigan at uh, GCHQ. It's not so much as a new era, it's expanded. And it's the same threats are still there. I was there when um, Sir David ran uh, in GCHQ. Uh, what's happening is, is, is the way that the way we're trying to analyse, to get people in there, to, to gather and to, what to do with intelligence, that's changed. But if I were a military commander, I'd want it to be as it is. Christopher, stay with us. Professor Sir David Oman, thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep. Still to come, Washington's ambassador with a difference and learning lessons from the Western Front. Now, what is the connection between the United States ambassador to the UK and this? White lips, pale face, breathing in snowflakes, burnt lungs, our taste. Lights gone, days end. Struggling to pay rent Long nights, strange men Foo Fighters and Ed Sheeran there, and one of their biggest fans is the American ambassador to the UK, Matthew Bars, and they're among the musicians who performed at a series of concerts at Winfield House, the ambassador's official residence, earning him the nickname of Diplomatic Dude. This week I went to meet Matthew Bars, and first I asked him about his love of music and its relevance to his job. Well, I do love music, and I think, uh, I mean, if you think back to, we're celebrating 200 years since the penning of our star-spangled banner our national anthem which of course is written by an american at the battle of fort mchenry where we were fighting you guys right so we talk a lot about commemorating 100 years and 70 years it's also wor worth reflecting the fact that 200 years ago we were fighting against each other and yet that song, Star Spangled Banner, is written to a British tune. The midterm elections, let's talk briefly about that, and the fact that the Republicans have gained control of the Senate, is that going to change the relationship between the UK and the US? Absolutely not. It won't change it. And what I think we saw wasn't a surprise to us. I mean, you see this typically at the six-year mark of a two-term presidency, that the party in power typically loses seats, and we saw that. But what we haven't lost is the resolve and the commitment to work with the UK to deal with the challenges we see around the globe. I mean, look what we're doing together to combat ISIL. Look what we're doing to combat Ebola. Look what we're doing together to combat climate change, to pick three uh, important topics that demand that we act now and that we act together and we act with all the tools we have as countries, including our incredible militaries, but not limited to those. The combat mission has ended in Afghanistan. We saw the ceremonies recently. Uh, America leaving 30,000 troops, Britain not leaving anywhere near as many. Do you think that combat mission is ending too soon? I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I think President Obama has been clear about our drawdown by the end of 2014 and then our 
continued presence there in a limited role. But the time is now for both what the Brits have done, the Americans, and the other members of the ISAF uh, mission is to um, let the Afghans take responsibility for their own security. You've seen that happening over the recent years, and that's important. We've given them, thanks to our sacrifice, a chance to do this. It is up to them, and they will do it with our continued help. But how great is the risk that things may slip backwards as they have done in Iraq? Well, I think, look, one of the things we saw in Iraq was that we didn't leave behind a residual force. And it's worth saying in this setting and others that the reason we didn't is that the democratically elected government of Iraq didn't want us to. And so we respected that and didn't. But that's not what you're seeing um, in Afghanistan with the newly elected president signing uh, the bilateral security agreement, um, asking us to stay there, again, in a limited role, um, so that we will be there to help them help themselves. On Russia and Ukraine, NATO's top general, U.S. Air Force General Breedlove, has spoken of the unwelcome return of nations using military force to coerce neighboring states. Surely this is a proof that the, the diplomacy so far and the sanctions against Russia haven't worked. What you're seeing there is the United States, the United Kingdom and others stepping up in the face of Russia's, Russia's aggression and in their um, complete disrespect for Ukrainian territorial integrity and sovereignty, we are stepping up and imposing real costs. Now, look, it is true that what we haven't said is we're going to go send in our militaries to confront Russia militarily over Ukraine, which I hope, as we commemorate 100 years of the outbreak of World War I, is put in that perspective. But it doesn't mean we are... Um, not doing anything. We're doing a lot. You ask any of the companies and people involved in the economic sanctions, these are real efforts, unified efforts, U.S., U.K., and others, imposing real costs and real consequences on Putin for his activities. The American ambassador to the U.K., Matthew Barzan, and you can see that interview in full on Forces TV. Uh, Christopher, do you welcome this slightly more informal, inclusive approach to diplomacy? Yeah, um, I, I've been... I've sort of known the ambassador since Sir Walter Annenberg, who gave a whole shed load of money to the cultural arts, something he wanted to, he wanted a legacy leaving behind, things like the Royal Academy and National Gallery and, and things. What this man is, uh, he, he in, in some ways, he's, he's not just smart, uh, and he is very smart. He is part of the new computer-savvy American um, private diplomacy. And private diplomacy is when you're actually not in the diplomatic service, but you're given a political appointment. You're giving a thanks for helping out for, in this case, the elections. I mean, he he helped very much in the election of of Obama. Mm -hmm. But he is a he's a his technology levels are enormous, and he mixes that with a very 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 sensible love for mm. Ed Sheeran. And you think he'll go far, don't you? I Even think, further. He's only 44, for heaven's sake. Well, I mean, well, some of us, you know. I, I would suggest that he will be part of uh, trying to get uh, Hillary Clinton elected mm. as the next president. And if he does that, then he could be a new John Kerry. Interesting stuff. And we had not talk about Iraq there. Um, and, of course, there's this announcement that Britain's going to boost its military role, more military trainers uh, being deployed to Baghdad within weeks. How much further 
And is it going to go, do you think, in terms of Britain's involvement? How long could it last? It could long. It could last. First, it could last a great deal. I mean, years. We could be in this in, into this sort of thing. What, one, one of the problems that happened is that the new or, or, or the last uh, prime minister of Iraq got into the business of a revenge politics. He was Shia or is a Shia, and he was against the Sunnis who used to rule. And that's one of the great problems. But British troops. Uh, reported, you know, they're going there as trainers, training on sort of heavy machine gun, uh, etc. There are special forces, British special forces, have been exercising in Tucson, Arizona, uh, with American special forces. And when I say exercise, it's a full-blown exercise as if you're having to go in boots on the ground into Iraq. And th- this, you say, wh- what do you think this means exactly? Uh, well, it means two things. Is, 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 is the reality of those exercises anticipating the worst? For example, right in the middle of so the exercise... So you're talking about combat troops on the ground, potentially? Combat troops on the ground, but special not... special forces. Yeah, special forces, but not necessarily combat troops in the sense of, you know, we'll shift a division here and a brigade there. Special forces with special operations. The mm. Australians are getting into this. They're sending 200 guys. But the most important part of the exercise so far is that they shoved in without telling the commanders an element of it, and that was to have a hostage taken. One of the forces gets taken by a hostage. What do you do? That's the reality of the exercises. We're doing that, which is far more than just sending 12 more fellows uh, out to teach people how to use a, 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 an a, and machine gun. Briefly, let's talk about the midterm election results. The Republicans taking control of the Senate, making Obama, as everyone says, a lame duck. Um, what does that mean for defence issues? What does that mean for the UK in the next two years? Very, very important to remember that when President Reagan, late President Reagan, got into his second term and got into the midterm primaries, exactly the same thing happened. He was stronger afterwards than ever before and the reason for that he said I've got nothing to nothing to lose I'm going for it but that means it's very important because what America does we still understand not so much the special relationship that, that we go along as best friends and that's what the military are sitting there in Whitehall saying let us do our analysis what does this mean for the next two years when there's an American election in 2016 which comes just after the British Defence Review. <clears throat> Let's talk about Sunday, because on Remembrance Sunday, BFBS will be broadcasting a special programme, Lessons from the Western Front. It looks at Operation Reflect, a First World War battlefield study. Joining us now to talk about the programme is its producer and presenter, Steve Britton. Hello, Steve. Um, tell us more about Operation Reflect. Well, basically, Operation Reflect is the Army's commemorations of the First World War, and this staff ride, which the programme centres on on Sunday, it it's basically the second phase of a four-phase programme. The first was uh, a conference they held at Rusi discussing the origins of the First World War. And basically the staff ride was to discover what lessons can be learnt and how the lessons learnt from the First World War have evolved in today's doctrine. Now, mm. today there's actually a conference which has taken place at Sandhurst and they're discussing um, what lessons were learnt through the discussions on that staff ride. The staff ride... I in- remember you reported from, from France, didn't you, on that, uh, into yeah. this programme. and it was interesting to do so, and I think one of the particularly interesting things about it was the fact that there were Germans on the staff ride, French, Canadians, Australians, and it was a way that they came together. And obviously part of the emphasis nowadays is on how you would grow an army if we had to 
because if you look at it, we've got a lot of junior officers now who've only experienced counterinsurgency. They haven't experienced conventional warfare. Now, mm. if we had to turn our attentions to that, how would you grow an army and how quickly could they adapt, which is something the Chief of the General Staff is very keen on at the moment. Christopher, um, lessons from the Great War, such as? Well, the first great difference between uh, the, the First World War and where we are now ties in very much what we were talking to Sir David Almond about, and that's intelligence. And what was missing entirely from the First World War is the way we went to war, the way we didn't realise that we were going to have to go to war. And so what was missing was this great intelligence, and in, in in, especially technical and electronic intelligence, when you actually understand what the other side is sort of thinking. But I tell you, there's one impression, and it's interesting at the, the time we approach uh, Remembrance Sunday, the majority of people in this country, their impression of the First World War is partly what they learned at school through the poets and about lions being led by donkeys. But it's also their, their history lesson of the First World War is considered to be uh, a blackadder. Mm. And that's not unlikely. Well, I'm sure there's nothing blackadder about your programme, Steve. Let's have a little listen to some of it now. You can say that part of the answer to the fortress engineering problem was the development of the tank, the change in artillery doctrine and such like. It took a long time to get that in place. Meanwhile, because of the requirement for the offensive spirit, attacks continued to be mounted with insufficient resources, with no way, frankly, of breaking through the fortress barrier. The so-called learning curve of the British Army for a long time was simply a flat line, in my view. The subject of the learning curve and the part that it played in helping the Allies to end the Great War is still a highly contentious issue, as soon became apparent. The entire learning curve argument is basically flawed because both sides are learning at a similar pass and also, for example, the Germans are collecting opinions from the units so basically the general staff is asking the units if they have ideas how to make fighting more effective so the Germans have a steep learning curve by themselves and the light have a steep learning curve and at the end things remain exactly the same and that is um, the real point in that and this idea which is a little bit underlying this entire stuff right that there's a learning curve which enables the British at the end to win the war is entirely flawed I think because both sides are learning at the end the Americans are coming that is a point and also we did not mention so far what did they do after the breakdown of the Nivelle offensive basically waiting that the Americans are coming. That is a point. And you can hear lessons from the Western Front on BFBS Radio at 1pm UK time on Remembrance Sunday and on BFBS Radio 2 at 7pm. This is BFBS Sigrep. Something else we'll be remembering this weekend is the 25th anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down. Friday the 10th of November 1989, 28 years and three months after the Berlin Wall went up, the very symbol of east-west divide and the most amazing scenes. I'm standing on top of the infamous Berlin Wall right in front of the Brandenburg Gate. There are thousands and thousands of Berliners alongside me. This is a day that will go down in history. 
That was BFBS's Patrick E. describing the dramatic scenes. Doesn't his voice down young there, Steve? Uh, you're still with us, Steve Britton. Um, you were also there at that time, weren't you? Uh, what was it really like? It was very much, as you heard there in the clip from Patrick, it, it was very much a carnival atmosphere. The one thing that sticks in my mind, though, is I can remember um, they were actually knocking holes in the wall, mm. they being the, uh, the West Germans, and I can remember an East German border guard standing there, and he was looking very stern-faced, and for him to come <laughs> to terms with this, we, we yeah. sort of gave him a nod and said, can we wander through here, and he sort of gave us a nod, but, you know, he didn't look too happy, to be honest with you. you were there, weren't you, as well? I was were probably you? next to you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was you were the, one, you was the, the one, yeah, the one knocking the hole <laughs> I tell you, well, that was, I still got the piece I as well on Where the desk. Where is it? It's on my desk. Hmm. It's on my desk. I throw it at intruders. Um, that's anybody <laughs> who comes into the study. Anyone who hey, might listen, want to. What, uh, what was, I still remember. What do you mean? So I, I, still, I, still re- I still remember the guards and people coming through the gate hmm. from East Germany and looking around and wondering what to do. I mean, what do you do with this freedom when you I know, come I mean, in? I mean, from my point of view, I was a language student. Wrong country. I was in Toulouse, but I went to the former East Germany, Germany that year just afterwards. And I remember the East Germans who were sharing a room with saying to me, what's it like? What do we do? You know, what's it like in the West? And how do we live? And all that. The uncertainty was quite palpable there. Um, I mean, it's incredible... Go on, Steve. Well, I, one thing that stands out, I mean, just before the wall came down as well, I can remember we went to West, um, West Berlin and we actually bought memorabilia from uh, a Russian soldier through the fence. <laughs> you know, it was how amazing. Much, how much like you pay? A, not, like a a <laughs> not a lot. Can I, tell you, can I just tell you one thing that we're seeing now and, mm. and the comparison? Eastern Europe, when that started to break up and people came into the... Uh, the, the wall came down, etc., People from Eastern Europe and Far Eastern Europe thought we were terribly rich Mm-hmm. And they wanted some of it, and that's why they wanted. And you've got the same thing now with yeah. the migration policies. I, me- I remember policies. even then, a full Capri went down like a king's car. Absolutely, mm-hmm. but the thing is, they got they got magazines, and now back to the electronic intelligence, where you can actually see what people are reading. They were reading things; they still are reading things, and think we've got some of that. We are going to United Kingdom or wherever, and we'll get some too. And they're surprised when they can't. So, twenty-five years on. Um, what do you make of Germany's day, Christopher? Is it really a unified country? Well, it can't be unified. Uh, not yet. I mean, in, in theory and politically it's unified. Uh, economically it's uni- uh, unified. And the right at the beginning, if you remember, that was one of the huge blunders um, by, by the Chancellor then saying we'll have a unified sort of Deutschmark. Uh, and and that, that will solve all the problems. It just added to the problems. The big difference, the big difference between now and then is the European Union. Mm. and that people can be protected under the European Union's financial, social and economic barriers. So um, this week, um, 25 years on, uh, the top uh, NATO commander, General Breedlove, has been talking of a frozen conflict as far as as Russia's concerned and Ukraine's concerned. Just bring us up to date on that, Christopher. Right. The um, Last Sunday... There was a vote by the, uh, if you call them, say, Moscow sympathisers, the rebellion in the east of Ukraine. And that vote was basically saying, if we want to be, we want to be an autonomous region, we want independence. Moscow has supported this. Mr. Putin, President Putin, has supported this idea. The Americans say you should not support this idea. That is encouraging separatism. The Russians have actually moved equipment back down towards the borders. They've started flying... Uh, into uh, across the Baltic 
they've started sending ships down to NATO countries to test their defences. That's the countries such as? Such as Portugal, for example. Now, Portugal commands the, the, the overfly of the Baltic at the moment, their F-16s. And they're also being probed by Russian warships down onto the, uh, onto the Portuguese coast, and the Portuguese are shooing them away. What the Russians are doing, A, they're making a point, B, they're actually testing reaction times. And that is a fundamental thing that will really get right up General Breedlove's frock. Because he says, when people start to do that, it frock. means that... What? Frock. It's, it's NATO language. OK, You thanks. wouldn't understand. Uh, so the, Thankfully. Carry on. <laughs> the, the, when people start to do that, what they're doing is testing. And mm. they're testing what your reaction uh, might be in case said General Breedlove, or will say General Breedlove, in fact, next week in a speech he's going to make, to see how prepared we are and how we might sort of... Uh, how If we might do nothing. Submarine in, in Swedish waters <coughs> the other day, stuck in the mud somewhere. Swedes very quietly have let it out. OK, and just before we go, I just must mention that uh, the man who is uh, supposed to have killed Osama bin Laden, the, the US Navy SEAL, has been outed by his father, his identity. Yeah, and he's the money father for saying, a book. Yeah. Uh, father saying, I ask, come and uh, I'll put a target on my door. I don't care that I've outed my son. Yeah, you see, I mean, there are three other uh, SEALs have actually said very similar things that they've actually shot. They were the people that shot Osama bin Laden. So it's far from uh, confirmed. Well, it's a, it's a sort of bit like Dallas. Do you remember Dallas? No, you probably wouldn't. Who shot wouldn't. JR? Who, yeah, of course I do. Who shot JR? Who shot Osama? Um, but it's got another a side to it, hasn't it? And SEALs are supposed to keep their lips ne Next instalment to come. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen to us again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This 